What I'd like to say is that one of the biggest difficulties of being a so-called expert is that you can easily lose sight of where your audience may themselves be starting from. I'd be quite interested to have a show of hands, and please don't worry about this, just a show of hands, who has read any Plato in the original? The direct Plato. How many hands are there? Translations. Yes, translations, yes, translations. But rather than people talking about Plato, so we have got five or six. And, and, and the point about that is that I learned something profoundly important from last week's lecture. But at the same time, I also got an object lesson from last week's lecture, and that is one has to be so careful about where one starts from to get people to understand why they should even concern themselves with Plato. After all said and done, he's still in Gaul by a hell of a long way. But what John Michel reminded me that in the myth of, the, of Atlantis, when Solon was being told by the Egyptians about the, the role of the Athenians, the role of the people who Solon represented to go to Egypt to find out about them was the trauma of having fought the Atlanteans was so great, so many young men were lost in the battle, that the trauma was so great that all the Athenian society forgot who they were and what they were and what their culture was. And it suddenly occurred to me, because I've been thinking about this for quite some time, why is modern architecture in a crisis? Modern architecture is in a crisis because modern architecture, with two inverted commas around it, the very reason why we found this institute to try and recover and remember what our culture is. Modern architecture started in the Bauhaus. The Bauhaus started itself in Germany, where all the young men were um, wiped out in, in, in an incredible pair of, of world wars. And the Bauhaus said, we must start culture from scratch. We must reinvent tradition, reinvent culture. Exactly the same phenomenon. What Plato was talking about was exactly opposite to our own times. You cannot reinvent tradition, you cannot reinvent culture. So what they said by saying they start from scratch, they, they actually started a movement going, which is going to try and pay no regard to the past whatsoever. So I suddenly realized that, that conversation between Solon and the Egyptians to try and explain that the Athenians had to remember who they were is the absolute fundamental doctrine of Plato. Nobody can teach you anything. None of you in this room can be taught anything by anyone, according to Plato. Someone's going to say, I want my fees back. You will not get your fees back. I'm about to teach you. No, the point is that what Plato says, nobody can teach you anything. All a person can do is remind you of what you already know. Very, very, very important. The fundamental doctrine, the whole basis of Platonic teaching is you hold within you all the knowledge you need. And the function of a teacher is only to help you remind yourself. You can experience this very easily, time and again, when you are being told something, or somebody's conversing, or you go to a play, or a piece of music, and somebody says, good gracious, that was just what was in my mind, and they, they brought it right back into the front of my mind. And everybody's experienced that. And that's exactly what Plato's whole doctrine is about. We actually know everything, but we do need people to help us remind. Therefore, I suddenly realized that the purpose of this place is far greater than we all hoped it would be anyway, and that is we are in a position in the 20th century where we need to remember 
what we are, what culture is. Because modernism left alone would happily deny that, that history and, and continuity of tradition matters at all. And of course what goes out of the window with that is the whole issue of whether there is greater intelligence than human intelligence in the universe. Question for all of you to take home. Is there greater intelligence in the universe beyond human beings? Because there is a branch of modern science which would say no. In fact, there's a scientist on the television just the other day saying, well, intelligence didn't come into the universe until quite recently when human beings became intelligent. Does anybody not see intelligence in anything else than human beings? Question to leave with you. Anyway, what I'm going to do now in this talk, I hope, is to take you into a reasonably, um, what is sometimes called abstract realm of mathematical relationships. I, I hope they won't be too difficult. But I'm going to start off with giving you an idea why one should be in the slightest concern with Plato and what Plato set out to do. The point is that, very, very important point, is that Plato wrote a series of dialogues which had more influence on, on all the cultures um, this side of the Middle East, and quite a lot of influence, one might say, the other side. One couldn't claim that Plato's influenced India and China, but, but Plato has certainly influenced Christianity, Islam, and Judaism. But Plato and Platonism, if you have to coin that word, Plato would have been very upset. Plato never, ever wrote in the first person. Plato never said, I am going to tell you anything. He never says, I at all, anyway. He isn't even present in his dialogues. Incredible display of the necessary discipline of checking the ego. Everybody in this room who might like to be an architect has to guard themselves as to whether you're going to be an architect and, and design architecture or are you going to design egotecture. That's the difference between the two schools. The point is, you have to have a good sense of who you are and what your identity is and. Have to have a good sense of self-confidence. Everybody has to have that. A sense of identity. But if you are allowed to be ruled by the ego, the ego is the thing that separates you. And therefore the ego is that which is separateness. And Plato's first presumption in the beginning of his dialogue with Timaeus about how the universe would be, the first problem, God, who is unnameable and unknowable by human mind, delegated the creation of the universe to the divine craftsmaster, the d divine craftsman. That was an incredibly revolutionary thing for Plato to suggest. There was that the, a craftsman, which is the lowest level of society at the time, could be divine and at the highest to create everything below. And the first thing the divine craftsman had to do was to get a fabric to make the, what human and world souls are made out of. Nothing material yet, but what souls are made out of. And he said, first problem is to put sameness and otherness together. Sameness is what makes a unity. Otherness is the necessary counterpart of that. And the only way the divine craftsman could do it was to make an amalgam of sameness, otherness, and being. Being is the word that Plato uses, or the translation he uses, for permanence. So it's very important. A lot of people, you'll read, many commentators, modern commentators, say about Plato, he was a dualist. Do not believe them. Plato always presents things in threes. And I can't understand how people constantly go back. Even the very first thing, sameness, otherness, was not possible until being was present. So there's a threeness before anything else. Right. I'm going to show some slides which I hope will bring us from architecture through to what is, we can call the architecture of the universe.
difference between chaos, which is a term which is completely misused by modern, um, many moderns. They use the word chaos about an exquisite form of modern mathematics, which is complete contradiction in terms, because chaos is that which has no order. Chaos is not an active present. Chaos is total passivity. We use the word chaos when we come back to our room in the evening and say, good God, did I leave this chaos when I left to go to work this morning, whatever. But that's not chaos at all. Chaos is that which has no order at all. It's totally passive. And you could say, in the modern side of the terms, it's the ultimate entropic state. A state where everything is completely passive. So, cosmos, that which is order, is the opposite and is built out of chaos. Okay, let's have the first slide up here. These are two um, photographs I, which I congenitally take on my travels when I'm moving around the country. When I see an attractive building um, of one kind or another, I, I, I fear um, I, if somebody says, Where is it? I can't tell you where that is. <laughs> that is where? Hooray! <laughs> somebody, somebody's hometown. This one. Ah. Um, I you can say anything you like. Right. Colchester. No, no, no. Anyway, the point I'm making is that if we take these buildings and up to a point, the point I'm making is it doesn't matter too much where they are, except the people who own them and work and stuff. What matters is we have something here which is an echo, a shadow, whatever you want to call it, an echo of building with proportional codes, building proportional ideas and proportional systems, which mostly stem from the, the Renaissance and people like Palladio. Palladio was a great Palladio. The great Palladio because he started as a simple stonemason cutting stone and landed up transferring such an understanding of Platonic doctrine and Platonic laws of proportion that it has covered the planet, literally, from one side to the other. You'll find classical buildings inspired by Palladio in Tokyo, in Reykjavik, in Los Angeles, in Mexico, anywhere you like. Even in the small country towns in, in Great Britain. So, it's quite useful to know why, for instance, these windows, the proportion of these windows, and the numbers of the windows and so forth, all these things come from codes which are an understanding of the, if you like, the propositions in Plato of the fact that the Creator made a beautiful universe. And beauty is the one thing that helps us remind ourselves as to who we are. And that's why beauty is absolutely central. The three ideals of Plato, and they had to be kept together, were truth, beauty, and the good, or goodness. And they had to be kept together. They had to be simultaneous. Another triad. The true, the good, and the beautiful. Because those three things were the roots, the key roots of rediscovering who you are and why you're here and what to do about it. And anything less than that can be a divergence. Okay, next one, wherever it is here. <clears throat> this is coming a little bit nearer to Palladium. Again, another country house in an unknown place, except for somebody's home, somewhere between it. <coughs> but again, quite interestingly, quite stretched proportions, quite stretched proportions, but nevertheless, um, <coughs> windows and um, patterns of designing and also beautiful understanding of bricks and so forth and classical details which originate in Greece and Rome where we discovered them, I say, during the Renaissance and again are the very fabric of some of the 
country houses of this country. Not all of them, but a great number of them. Next one. We can even go to such a place here as the Jordan, which you may say, oh, to the land countries of and to see the influence of the Roman or Greco-Romans for civilization, the remnants of it in a place like Jordan. This is a theatre, originally built as a theatre and still used as a theatre in, in the Jordan. I just happened to be a tourist at the time taking photographs. Very nicely, you can see the restored pieces and so forth, and you can see a lot of the original work. And what's nice at this particular place in Jordan is a great number of Greek, um, usually carved Greek statements. But the, the Greek being the civilized language of the Roman period. Next one here. <coughs> now, just in case you think that I am pushing you only towards considering it as a classical inspiration, classical architecture, it was Plato and the Platonic school which made this building possible. Anybody not know what that building is? Of course, quite a few people. They wouldn't dare say me. Um, it is Chartres Cathedral. And Chartres Cathedral, as far as I'm concerned, is the great prototype cathedral. And the mother of, if you might, one might say, the fulfillment of the, of the greatest of Christian architecture and the mother of all the other cathedrals. Not that it was necessarily the first one built, because it was continuously being built. And even in the form it is now, there are many spires which were not completed. There's one was meant to come from here. There's another from there. There were going to be seven spires, but in fact, they didn't Yet it is still one of the most beautiful expressions. Church school, and when I say school, I mean the whole the word university was, was founded in Paris and Church. And it, uh, what we now call universities, I would say quite clearly, are, are not universities. I should be quite aggressive about it. I've taught in universities many years of my life. They're diversities today. They were universes when they were formed because they were formed to see the unity of the universe. That's what they mean, the universe. They were formed to study aspects of one, one ultimate phenomenon. Now, the school of Chartres was the first time Platonic philosophy had come back, thanks to the Muslims and the Arabs, had come back. Okay, we all know the Muslims destroyed the, the library at, um, where was it, on Africa there? Alexandria. Who? I thought it was the Copts who just destroyed it. Oh, that, I think that's what's called the Muslim Copts take Arabs, I'm afraid, and stuff. I think mean, there's a man who talks to us along here, and he's very careful about saying Copts. <laughs> 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 you read it, you shouldn't read it, you shouldn't read it, you shouldn't read it, you shouldn't read it, all the things that lecturers tell you, right? Let me believe what your heart tells you. Anyway, the point about this is that although the school Alexander was, was, was destroyed, all the library was destroyed. Thank God, the classical literature was preserved by the Muslims and it came back through into Chartres, of all curious things, by Spain, translation schools in Spain, brought to Chartres by Jewish travelling wise men. Kind of thing which is not written in history books, but um, there were peripatetic um, Jewish teachers who came to visit the Jewish community in Chartres, a very large Jewish community, and they brought with them a lot of the translations up from Spain. Then what happened, the school of Chartres sent students down to Spain to meet the meeting ground where translations were being done, where all three religions were working together, the Jews, the Muslims, and the Christians were all working together in Toledo, translating the classics, and trying to see how they related to their respective religions. They're revelations. A philosophy is not a revelation. Very important difference. Plato is a philosopher. Christ and Muhammad and the 
patriarchs of the Old Testament, or the Torah, the Jewish Torah, are people who receive directly from God. And that's quite different from any claim that a philosopher will make. A philosopher will be inspired and he will give you philosophy, but a religion is something quite different, a very important difference. So here we have <coughs> Platonism forming a building which looks nothing like a classical building. But it is the philosophy and the proportions behind it which, together with the whole thrust of Christianity, the message of Christianity, was being carried by a school in Chartres, which Bishop, Bishop Fulbert, who started the last cathedral we see here, he was called by his students Socrates. Because there was a, that was a, a reverent title for him. He was so wise in his teaching, they used to call him our Socrates. Somebody back is saying, who's Socrates? It wasn't his pet dog. Socrates was the man who had formed Plato as to what to write, okay? Next one here. <clears throat> now, why is this building an anathema? Somebody may say it's not. I owe it to you. It's up for sale. This is a <clears throat> masterpiece <coughs> of modern architecture in Dallas. It typifies modernism, it typifies Dallas, it typifies the whole thing of believing that machinery can make better architecture than human hands. And what is missing is absolutely elementary and simple. There is no rhythm, proportion, or musicality in it. The argument is, is we're going to save money if the window here is the same window as we put it up there. Therefore, you just do that. doesn't matter if there's no character. doesn't matter even if there's nothing to reflect in the windows. It, even the clouds reflect extremely badly. But this is the ultimate drive. If you first of all make the presumption you can start culture from scratch, forget everything that's gone before you. Also, the ultimate drive of industrialization, in the end, it's done better by machines, so why be human? And let's just have automation, and um, what will we do with human things? I'm not quite sure. Anyway, next one here. Point I'm making is, what is missing is proportion. Here's a diagram which was drawn, again, in the early Renaissance, we might say, of sometimes called the last of the great Gothic cathedrals at Milan. And here you see how this Platonic philosophy influences the positions and proportions and harmonics of a, of a Gothic building. What you see here, quite a lot of complicated equilateral triangles going through from the ground going up and a, a sort of triangular uh, matrix in here. You can see the, a perfect hexagon in here. This is the important point. This is the boss, which is the visual um, extreme of the interior, but the place in which air is transformed to a higher place than here. You can see the square, and you can see the triangle. You can see the square on its edge in here. And these three forms in here were forms which were um, considered by the Pythagoreans and Plato as fundamental to the way in which the whole universe is formed. <coughs> Plato called them the shapes in which the molecules of fundamental matter were shaped. He actually picks two triangles, which we'll come back to. Two simple triangles, which he said, one is the most beautiful in the universe, but if somebody finds one more beautiful, then the victory is theirs. He's not dogmatic about it. In fact, why he does that is because he's hiding the fact there's a third triangle, um, which he does hint about, but you have to find it from yourself, for yourself. So that is to give you an idea what is common between classical architecture and, and Gothic architecture are the, the practice the practical use of geometric forms and proportions. What you see at the very top is the Virgin Mary in the geometric shape, which is two overlapping circles. 
next one here. And to just put a little bit of Eastern terraces in your way, if you see a classical doorway, you can soon test how much that the designer of that classical doorway was using traditional principles. What we find is, let's find out, when you ever you see one of these pedals, let's find out if you continue it, whether it makes a complete polygon. Here, the angle of what is shown, that triangle up there, is one-eighth the angle of, of returning back. Here you see the point that it hits the alcove, which has been carved out, this is for a statue, and continues. We also find a very simple principle, which is the, the octave, and that is one circle here and one circle there. So the proportion of that distance is two, and that is one, and that's the proportion of a musical octave. Come back to that. So there is the same principle being used for a classical form, and the same principle being used for a gothic form. Next one. <coughs> and here, a rather more complicated, a rather better known one, and rather more than somewhat fascinating, in the original, which is in um, Scamozzi's book, where he talks about the, the prime geometry. The only geometry that's actually in the book is the square that you can see here. The doorway is in it, but it needs a little bit of extra of the doorway at the top. And um, then he puts this line in, these two lines in, and he puts the diagonals of the square in. I have just added the fact that if you take the angle, now we're, we're right in the middle of that pediment, take the angle, you'll find a perfect ten-sided figure, which, whose sides actually sit beautifully on the square, although they come below. So he's leaving much to be found. In other words, the, the point about what you publish and what you leave people to discover is, is, is part of the whole principle of just showing so much to get the inquisitiveness going. You see, if you join this point in this, which is a decagon, ten-sided figure, join that point up to that point where it crosses the diagonal is the opening of the door, which again is a perfect octave. Next one here. Now here is a new principle coming in. This is one of the very late Gothic um, interiors, or sections through Batalha Cathedral in Spain. And the surprise upon surprise here, this massive figure holding up his arms proportionally, which influenced um, that gross drawing by that, I nearly said gross architect, which is much too rude, that architect called that Corbusier, who did a man with a huge crane instead of a hand up here and built his modular on. This is where he got the idea from. But this is not Christ in here. This is not Christ, this is Apollo. Very, very interesting. Giving an indication of the influence of the classical tradition to the Gothic form. This is a contemporary drawing with the building of Batalha Cathedral, very late Gothic cathedral in Spain. Next one here. <coughs> Same principle. This is a drawing by Francesco Di Giorgio, who was the man who had such a reputation for biblical scholarship that when our own Henry VIII, when I say our own, I'm now talking as an Englishman, our own Henry VIII wanted to have a divorce. We all know about this problem of him wanting to have a divorce, and, and the local church wouldn't give it him. So he sent off a, 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 an aquarium all the way to meet this um, obscure monk called Francisco de Giorgio, and asked him if he could give him some references in the Old Testament which would, which would justify a divorce. Um, we all know it wasn't a very successful thing, but nevertheless, Francisco de Giorgio's drawing here shows the same principle of this figure is known as an anthropos. That is, uh, if you like, ideal human being, ideal form, anthropos. There's also a thing called an anthropocosm, 
that is the anthropos representing the whole cosmos. In other words, a human body in its perfect state is another model of the universe. But you can see what is happening here, the way in which um, the head again is up. Very, very interesting. You see when the chin has got a line underneath it, you can also see the difference between this level of climax on the Gothic Cathedral and the higher level also start from the chin. Although there's very different things going on here. The way his arms align gives the slope of the interior section of this classical church, which would be probably in Venice or somewhere. Next one here. She's one of my favourites. This is Francisco de Giorgio at his most imaginative and one might say slightly sexy. But nevertheless, he's pointing out that the Ionic column is, is meant to have the grace of a beautiful female figure. And so this lady is called Ionica, which I think is quite appropriate. And here we have very, very literal use. We call that part of the column the capital. Well, caput and capital, the head and so forth, is very obvious. And again, the proportions of that capital um, are meant to relate to a beautiful human body. So we have a module of seven heads going into her body. And this one, again, a different proportion, this one here. Now, a lot of people, many times, have said to me, oh, you're one of those people who, who dream lines up on, on, on architecture and then try to tell us that the architects actually put those lines on. Well, I've had that excuse so many times I've got bored that it doesn't worry me anymore. Very interesting that Le Corbusier published this in his book. Le Corbusier's book, um, which was very, very influential in, in the 20s. Uh, what was it called? That's it. Towards the New Architecture. Very much. He published this, which is very nice, because, of course, he was trying to justify his, his modular. This is the, a drawing which is found on a marble slab, an incised marble slab, which makes it absolutely clear, because this was dug up in, in, in Athens, southern Athens, or the Piraeus, which is the south of Athens, and it demonstrates that the architect was, and this is very rare, the architect was using certain geometric proportions to give him positions, and here we have three to two, and that is the proportion of a musical fifth, which was something that um, Palladio re-canonized in the Renaissance and said this is, this is absolutely perfect shape for the plan of a room, as he gave seven plans and seven rooms and so forth. But here we have geometry determining the proportions of the facade of a building. In this case, it was an arsenal, whatever. But we do have evidence that right back in classical Greek times, geometry was the tool by which order, proportion, and therefore beauty were used and became synonymous. And it isn't something that somebody in recent centuries has invented and tried to drop on architecture as a theory. It was the way it was done. Okay. Next one here. Now, I am going to introduce you to... I've, I've given you a paper handout, and please forgive the English. I did it in a great hurry. English is not my strong point. Um, and you may find many faults in, in the reading of your handout. This is a section of the Mina Dialogue. And I have said in your handout that if you want to make your first insertion into Plato, the whole dialogue, the Mina dialogue, is a very good one to, to start with. Because in it, Plato concentrates on that doctrine that knowledge is actually remembering. And so here's the little statement which comes out of um, Socrates. The soul, since it is immortal, very, very important principle of Plato, the soul is immortal, that means your body may die, 
In fact, everybody here in this room has had their body die many times before they even got to where they are now. Just in case you didn't know, it happens to be a scientific fact that the body you're carrying now is only seven years old, with the exception of a few nerve cells. So, I don't know how old you are, but if you're 21, your body's died completely three times to get to this stage. You were alive, but you changed your body completely. Quite an important thing to remember when you think you're permanent and grab on to say, I hold myself, this is me. This is only 18 months old, but I've got hold on. Nothing that I've got hold on now, my flesh, is more, can never be more than 18 months old. Try to grab hold of a bone or a tooth, same thing. Only seven years old is maximum. Think about it. So, the soul is immortal, which is a quite a different thing. Our identity is quite different from our body. Each person's room has a name. Okay, that name is relatively arbitrary. You might even change your name since your parents gave it to you. But you as a person, your identity is something quite transcendental from this physical thing you carry about as a body. So there he talks about the soul is immortal, your essential identity is immortal, has been born many times. In other words, Plato contributes the same doctrine as um, the Vedic tradition, that is the Hindu tradition. Been born many times, has seen all things, very important word, seen all things both here and in the other world. In other words, knows everything. Has learned everything that is. So we need not be surprised that if it can recall the knowledge of virtue or anything else which, as you see, it once possessed. All nature is akin, and the soul has learned everything. So that when a man has recalled a single piece of knowledge, learned it in ordinary language, there's no reason why he should not find out all the rest if he keeps a stout heart and does not grow weary of the search for seeking and learning are in fact nothing but recollection. Very interesting word, recollection. It's like the word remembering. What does the word remembering mean? which is the necessity to call upon God, which is called zikr, and that is actually a recalling, or a calling, if you like. And it also can be translated as a remembrance. The point about it is, to recollect means to collect back together, to hold again, to remember, to put the members back together again. We can have a dismembered mind, and we can have a dismembered body. We can't have a dismembered body and recover, but the point that Plato is making is we can rediscover our own identity and our own wholeness from an act of will from within ourselves. Helped by others, maybe. Next one. Now to move from that to another person who is said to be extremely influential on Plato, Philolaus. Philolaus was contemporary with Socrates, not that well known, and he was a member of the Pythagorean community which was, incidentally, the first community that is recorded in the West where women and men were equal. This is way back in the Plato's time. And, the, unfortunately, the local people in Croton, in Italy, where they were, took exception, well, the leader of the community took exception because he wasn't accepted. He really said he got his guys to go and burn the community down. Rather sad. So Philolaus had to come back to, it, to Greece, and Philolaus taught and had written down quite a lot of the Pythagorean doctrines. And the fragments are very well recorded, and a recent book has come out about them, which is absolutely excellent. And the general belief is that Philolaus's fragments and his teaching were the basis of what I'm going to go into now, which is Plato's Timaeus. The Timaeus is a dialogue. The chief speaker is, is Timaeus himself. Timaeus is well known in 
happens as having been a Pythagorean, and therefore Socrates is asking a Pythagorean to please talk about the way in which the Creator put our universe together. And the first thing that Timaeus says was says to, to, to Socrates when he asked him, he said, no man unless out of his mind would dream of doing such a thing until he's done every evocation he can to the gods and goddesses to pray that what he says is not going to offend them and that it's going to be true. He then gives another very important warning. He said, whatever I have to say to you, whatever I have to say to you, whatever any human being has to say to you, please remember that I'm human and you who judge me are also human and therefore we can only ever get the likely model, not the absolute final model. So likelihoods, in his doctrine, meant it was like that which was the real model. The real model is in the metaphysical realm, and everything we have in physical form is merely a shadow, or a reflection of that. So here he's talking about the importance of looking at tenderness. So we're going to go into this tenderness now. <coughs> okay, next one here. The way in which the tennis was put together was most often in just a set of dots. One dot, two dots, three dots, and four dots. They could then be redrawn like this, if you like, and then all the possible relationships between them can be drawn like that. But this was known as the tetractis. The word tetractis in Greek means fourness, because in fact it's one, two, three, four, and apparently the major part of the Pythagorean teaching was taught on this pattern. That anything in the universe which was um, able to be taught could be taught on this pattern of ten. It is what's called a triangular number because it's made of triangles as you can see. And of course has therefore at its core a hexagon. My first year students from Vita will recall that's what they drew with me in their geometry class but I didn't tell them at the time that's what they drew. But that's what they drew. So that is the ten. That is ten. In other words, one plus two plus three plus four equals ten. So there are ten dots, but they represent number one, number two, number three, number four. Next one here. Just a, a, a blow out of that. Next one here. <coughs> and this book is the book which has the most amount of authentic. Um, material in it from the classical period. Um, I do actually have to have some of these. And uh, on behalf of my dear daughter, Avery wants to buy one, they're welcome. They're so expensive, I wouldn't even dream of suggesting you do. But should you want to, this book actually is the first time it's been translated into a modern language since Greek times, which is really quite something. It hasn't been translated out of the, the traditional Greek until our own times from back, back in Greek times. In the Renaissance and so forth, it was read in the original Greek, but nobody translated it. Very curious thing. Terribly important book, because when it says the theology of arithmetic, or the theology of the numbers, it's actually giving a very interesting insight as to the fact that the number four means a great deal more than one, two, three, four. Next one here. That's the most simple version of it. Next one now. What I did is I then drew around each of these circles ten emanating rings. And I just, this is purely self-indulgent, don't worry about it, but I'm absolutely fascinated with what those, each one of these is generating ten circles. Now the crossing over that 
generate all sorts of very, very intriguing patterns which appear to be triangles and hexagons and squares, but of course they are actually only crossing over circles. Next one here. It's just an example of the geometry. Here is the influence of this form permeating into Judaism. And there was a great Jewish philosopher called Philo, Philo the Jew, who wrote from a Pythagorean point of view and tried to, and did a very remarkable job, of putting the creation myth of Plato together with the creation myth in the Old Testament. So he draws, this is the name of God, Yehovah, and he does the, the, the four yods, then the Yehovah. And interesting commentary on this, each one of these values, each one of these letters in the, in the Hebrew alphabet has a numerical value. And curious enough, the yod, the dot, is in itself the value 10. Curious way of, of um, each one of these is, is a 10. Therefore, you put all the, you add the values of the letters together, and in this tradition, you get, God has 72 names, and therefore, it is an expression of the 72 names or 72 aspects of God. Just, just to show, I made, made the point that the Jewish faith took it up and made, took it into their content of the tradition. Just an example of it. Next one here. <coughs> this is the way in which Pythagoreanism and the five-pointed star was apparently one of the most sacred forms that they used. If you happen to be walking into the north doorway of Westminster Abbey, where our kings and queens are crowned, you will see on your right-hand side in the tympanum this rather beautiful tetractus. One, two, three, four. One, two, three. One, two, one. Of course, others moving out here, but a very uh, absolute statement in the Gothic tradition of these importance. A mere decoration, if you want it to be. Just somebody fancy doing it. But it is placed in the tympanum, which is the place in all religions where sacred forms are put, whether it's Hindu, whether it's uh, Islamic, which would be geometry, or whether it's Christian, which would often be images of Christ or Mary or whatever. Here we have the practice of Pythagoras in the doorway of the north entrance of Westminster Abbey. Next one. Here we have a very, very interesting uh, version of it. I said the School of Chartres were deeply interested, and not only deeply interested, but deeply influenced by um, Pythagoreanism and Plato. These, this is the east, easternmost end of Chartres Cathedral. And because it's the easternmost end of Chartres Cathedral, it is the only, the final glass window, the only one which is not a rose window, because the climax of the west, the climax of the south, the climax of the north are all rose windows. Here we have Mary and the Christ child and a long lancet window. What we have is here a basket of what is apparently bread. We have another basket of what is apparently bread here. Next one. And the curious thing is, if we take a close look, we find there are ten spheres in both baskets. Here we have what looks like the top part of the tetractus. It is one, two, three, and the, the four which would be here are two there and two there. So there's a very interesting little, if you like, esoteric version of the basket of bread. And the reason why that basket of bread is there is because the bakers of Chartres paid for that window. Very interesting way of mixing symbols and, and the same thing going on here. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and two on top ten. <coughs> so these two windows are beside each other in Chartres. They are the culmination behind the high altar 
and they are again registering, as Pythagoras is part of the West Coast, they're registering the fact of the influence of Pythagoreanism. Next one. Here is the way in which the tetractus is the basis of the proportions of the tympanum. Remember I said we, what we saw before in Western Sarabi, these were just geometric patterns. Here, they represent levels of being in the hierarchy. And this is the royal portal, as it's called. It is the left-hand side. The main royal portal is in the middle here. There's one on the right. Where you enter the cathedral, you go right the way around, and this is the one you exit. This is Christ exiting um, in his um, material body. And the purport, these are the, um, this is the human level, the gospel, um, the, 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 the people who carried the gospel for Christ, the apostles, here are the angels communicating from the high world, here's the angel, and here's Christ finally ascending. The proportions from the top here to this level, which is where his two hands are, to this level, which is the angelic level, to this level, which is the human level, these actually let you know what these different intervals, what they signify. Here you have the trinity in the primary sense here. You then have another trinity in this sense. This is the angelic domain. This is the human domain. Not the human domain, actually. The apostolic domain. The human domain is below in the doorway where we are ourselves. But there is the absolute tetractus being used as a proportional scheme to make the Next one here. There is the... Very simple. I'm going to come back to this diagram two or three times now. So here is a way of seeing why it is called a fourness, because that's number one, that's number two, that's number three, and that's number four. Add them all up, they come to ten. So you can draw them again like this, next one here. Bring a button, not draw them again like this. Now, what we've got is Plato in the Timaeus dialogue. Timaeus talks about having put this substance together, this soul substance, then the first thing that had to be fabricated was the soul of the world, and therefore the soul of human beings. Therefore, by putting this amalgam together of sameness, otherness and being, this, this trinitarian amalgam, he then started cutting it into harmonic intervals. And these are the intervals which he says uh, the divine craftsman cut this soul stuff into to make the soul of the universe. There are seven intervals here, and what, uh, why I'm drawing it like this is to say Plato therefore only gave seven out of the ten possible Pythagorean positions. Very interesting thing. Plato, this is called the lambda. The word lambda means letter L in Greek. And the lambda was known and was used by, in Plato's own time. Everybody understood that when the creator cut these intervals, they, they all, were always drawn like this. Even Aristotle, his student, uh, knew this and talked about this. What do we have now on this side? We have unity, which is the whole crux of the matter. Double of unity. Double of double of unity, and double of double of double unity, if you like. So here we, have, we, are, we are progressing. This is called a geometric progression by two. Two times, <coughs> two times that, two times that. Very, very simple. Here we have the progression by three. What Plato is actually saying is there are only three numbers that really matter. And there they are. So here's the progression by three. This is three times that is three times unity. This is three times that, and that is three times that. Now there are seven intervals there, and commentators suggested that these are analogous to the seven planets, the seven fold system of our solar system, and the distances, and so forth. They are nowhere near anything being exact, but they are analogous to 
any sevenfold system. Now, in music, a sevenfold system is the intervals between one note and the same note an octave higher in the diatonic scale. You take the white notes on a piano and you go da 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 da, you start with C and you finish with C, you have eight white notes. And in between those, you have five black notes. The five black notes, the pentatonic scale, which nearly all folk music, as it's called, across the universe is written in, and the most religious music of Christianity, which is the Gregorian chanting, is written in a five-note scale, but Bach and a lot of the greatest European music was written in a, an eight-note scale, the diatonic scale. The Arabic ear, or the Muslim ear, was not satisfied with eight notes, it, it decided to take on twelve intervals. The Hindu civilization took on 22 intervals in the same period between those two notes. And it's called the Shruti system. It's extremely interesting. The difference between 5, 8, 13, and 22 is a golden mean series. So it's an indication that there's a golden mean interval between the different subtleties appearing in the different civilizations. It's quite fascinating. So let's go to here. And there are the three spaces which Plato didn't talk about and, of course, left it to those who know. Or, as Plato says clearly in the dialogue, let he who is afraid of God find out. Well, a nice way of putting it. So it's extreme. Okay, the mystery is, okay, what would these three be? And why is it important to find what they are? Well, the reason why it's important to find what they are, a great deal of the musical doctrine and the whole of Plato's theory of creating a universe is the soul must be useful and harmonic. And if the soul is good from harmonic, therefore the body will become. So, so let's find out what these are. Now, it's not difficult, not at all difficult, to find out what these are once we see the geometry of the way in which the mathematics bears. In other words, this angle is the three times angle. So if we came down here, all we have to do is say, what's three times two? Three times two. Thank you. <laughs> 3 times 2 is 6. 3 times 6 will be 18. 3 times 4? Come on. 12. So this, if we did a 3 times angle, this would be 6, this would be 18, and that would be 12. But that, to confirm it, we have a 2 times angle. 2 times angle. What's 2 times 3? So we've got to have that one. Okay, same result, 6. What is 2 times 6? So we have the same result. Monotheistic religions do not disagree about was that the universe is created in six intervals or six days. It's really quite useful to find out what the great monotheistic religions agree about because we hear every day in the newspaper they disagree about. They all agree the universe creates a perfect number. It's called a perfect number because the factors of it, the factors of one, two, and three, if you, the only time in mathematics or arithmetic it occurs if you add one to two, you get three, if you add in other words, if you add 1, 2, and 3, you get 6. 1 plus 2 plus 3 plus 6. Simple. But the only time it's possible, 1 times 2 times 3 also equals 6. The reason why it's called Tokyo. So 6 is there, and this is a wonderful clue as to the generation of a lot of other things. But we'll now look at it again here. I'm not going to go to Vitruvius, and if you don't know who Vitruvius is, I'm absolutely sure everyone in the room does know who Vitruvius is, but if you don't, he's something well worth reading, because he's one of the great classical architectural authors, 
Um, some people accuse him of making a lot of mistakes, but who, has it, who doesn't make a lot of mistakes? But in between is a very curious statement in Book 5, and in the preface to Book 5 of Vitruvius. He says, without any explanation, Pythagoras also, and those who followed his sect, he decided that Pythagoras not the sect, decided to write their rules cube pattern in their volumes, and fixed upon a cube, which is 206 lines. And they thought that not more than three cubes should make be in one treatise. There's a great deal being said in that little statement, which, if you're a classicist, it's not at all difficult to pick up. And that is that Plato likened atoms to letters. And atoms get together, and therefore you can call that a molecule of letters, which becomes, of course, a decipherable word. And he also called them seeds. So very, very intriguing. Um, so out of nowhere, suddenly Pythagoras jumps into the Trudius. So let's look at 216, because 216 is very, very intimately related to this pattern, and particularly to the central number here. I mean, it doesn't matter, but if you've got a calculator, something just like Q6, you'll find the calculator going on. Because we're talking about the cube, which is a number by the power of three. A number multiplied by itself, and then multiplied again by itself. That's a cubic number. Okay, let's have a look at this. Where are we? Are we up here? I think we're up here. Let's just do a little bit of multiplication now on our new pattern. And if we do 1 times 3 times 9 times 27, we get this number, which is the square of that number he's talking about. If we multiply 1 by 2 by 4 by 8, we also get the same result. If we multiply across this way, what it amounts to is we multiply 2 by 3, we get 6 to the power of 1. If we multiply 4 by 6 by 9, we get 6 to the power of 3. From 8 by 12 by 8, we get 6 to the power of 6. So this number actually, that central multiplication gives us this number that um, the is talking about. And the greater number that we get, which is the multiplication, this way lands out with a number which actually is the square, this is the square root of that number. So this is just a hint of how the numbers were used having got the very first elementary pattern. Now we're going to move into... What Plato said was, the divine craftsman, in harmonizing the soul and the intervals of the soul, which is what this original pattern was, filled in the intervals between these, which were the harmonic intervals, with three, two kinds of means. Already we've got a geometric proportion. This is what's called a geometric progression. That's a geometric progression. And he said two other proportions were needed in between these, which are the harmonic progression, or the harmonic mean, and the arithmetic mean. So there are three kinds of proportion that Plato says in his dialogue that the creator is using. Now, the first one is arithmetic. And that is, between two and four, the arithmetic mean is three. Between two and four, if we make this shape, that gives us the arithmetic mean between two and four. If we want to know what the arithmetic mean between 4 and 8 is, we can make the same shape here. If we want to know what the arithmetic mean between 6 and 12 is, all these are octaves, by the way, we then can find its number. By simply doing this little bit of wiggle with our pen or whatever, we can actually find, locate, three times to confirm it, what the arithmetic means. That gives us a quality. The arithmetic mean is the musical interval, the perfect musical interval of 3 to 4 
which is called the musical force. There, there are only um, three perfect intervals in human ear, which are true for all human ears. That if you take a stretched string and you divide it in half, it'll give you a sound which is an octave higher of the note that you plucked when it was full. Full line. That's one to two. You then damp it off at the interval of three, and it will give you a perfect musical fifth. If you then divide it into four and damp it off at three to four, then you get the perfect musical fourth. And somebody once said about the origination of the pop scene, which has happened in my lifetime, I think, not in your chap's lifetime, that we're having people before the age of 21 becoming multi-millionaires because they could hit a chord which had fourth, a fifth, and an octave in it. And they make enough noise, enough rhythm, they could become very rich. Sorry, this is highly cynical, don't listen to it. Um, the point I'm making is, here we have the way in which the arithmetic means can be found. The next one is a harmonic mean. And here we have another pattern. If we want to know what the harmonic means between three and six is, we draw another little wiggle. The harmonic mean between 3 and 6 is 4. The harmonic mean between 6 and 12 is 8. And the harmonic mean between 9 and 18 is 12. So by putting these three in here, we can actually see quite clearly the intervals which were necessary to put in, as Plato said, into these places, down both sides. When we do, we get 19 intervals. Harmonic mean, arithmetic mean, harmonic mean, arithmetic mean, harmonic mean. But this is just a graphic way of learning those things. Next one here. If anybody here is mathematically minded, and it doesn't matter if you're not, you might actually like to see, if you, if you want to record, what these mean in terms of mathematical formulae. The geometric mean is the square root of the product of, of the extremes. In other words, the extremes are 3 and 27, in this case. So you multiply 3 by 27, you get 81, you take the square root of that, and it's 9. That tells you that 9 is the geometric mean between those two. Well, we know that that's the geometric mean because we're coming down here, and I told you this is a geometric proportion. The harmonic mean is twice the product of the extremes divided by their sum. This is the most complicated one. Twice the product of the extremes divided by their sum. So here, the actual harmonic mean between 3 and 9, which we haven't put in here, the harmonic mean would be in here is 4.5. How it's proven is that 3 times 9 equals 27, 27 times 2 equals 54, divided by 12, which is what this formula is, gives us 4.5. The arithmetic mean differs from each of its extremes by the same amount. A very, very simple one. And that is, 6 differs by 3 differs from 3 by 3. 9 differs from 6 by 3 too. So, those, so 6 equals 3 plus 3, and 9 equals three, 9 minus 3. Very simple, but that is just merely the mathematics of it. What, the, what Pythagoras and Plato and the esoteric tradition were interested in, what was the meaning? Why did we have three means? Why are the three kinds of means? And I'm going to just, I think it's the next one here, I hope. Sorry, that is a way in which you therefore can draw the musical scale as if it was a, 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 a thread on a violin or a, on a guitar that is stretched from there to there. If you damp it off with your finger <coughs> at um, this point here, which is the proportion of 43, it will sound the fourth. If you damp it on here, which is the proportion of 3, it will sound the musical fifth. If you damp it off here, the sixth. If you damp it off there, the second, the third, and so forth. Now, the point that's going on here is that the other numerical value, which is not 
perfect. These are perfect. This one, this one, and this one are perfect. But the interval between two notes is not perfect because there are two places where there are anomalies. Otherwise, the, the proportion would be 9 to 8. Proportion 9 to 8 between each of the notes of the diatonic scale, with the exception of that strange interval there, which is an incredibly curious proportion, and this one at the end between the octave, which is here. And thereby lies the mystery of the octave has these two very curious different intervals in it. Next one here. Now, there's the pattern again. And now we can see um, all the rules that we've been talking about of perfection. The proportion of 2 to 3 is the musical fifth. Each one of these are 2 to 3, 2 to 3, in terms of these. Therefore, all these are fifths. These are 2 to 3, 2 to 3, 2 to 3. Therefore, all these are musical fifths. There are three musical fours, because four to three is a fourth. This is the proportion of four to three. This is the proportion of four to three. And therefore all this relationship, that relationship is a fourth. That, again, perfect fourths, perfect fifths going this way. All these relationships this way are octaves. This is twice that, therefore an octave relationship. That is twice that, therefore an octave and so forth. And one example of that which is not perfect, that is eight to nine. That diagonal through there gives us the interval between the notes of the tone. That is this interval in one, two, three, four, five cases, two cases in the octave doesn't, doesn't pretend. Therefore, it only occurs once. Next one here. So, in my studying this, and in being asked to write the foreword to this book, which is really quite an awe-inspiring thing to have to do, I came to the conclusion and I offer this only as a, as, as a possible conclusion, is that nearly every tradition across the planet would never reduce the relationships of the way in which we view things to less than three. In, in ancient China, it was called the heavenly, or the, the great oriental triad, it's called. And that is, that there is a heavenly way of looking at things, that is transcendental, there's a human way of looking at things, and there's a worldly way. In other words, the physical world, the psychological world, and the spiritual world. Each are views, perceptions. And I have a strong intuition that this is the meaning of these different proportions, these different meanings. They make up the fundamental vibrational harmonic of these three viewpoints. And they have to be integrated to have a, have a proper, if we use the word holistic, they've got to be integrated. So the geometric is the heavenly, the harmonic is the human, and the arithmetic is the worldly. This is the most simple one, this is the way atoms add together. The harmonic is a mixture of that and that, which is where the place of human, humanity is between transcendental principles here and physical principles here. We, as human beings, are in between those two. Next one here. Now, this is just a coincidence, but it's quite fun. And that is that in the drive to dismiss tradition and found... Uh, make, make a new fundamental star, uh, throw out all the Greek ideas of atom. <coughs> Anybody in this room know what the word atom means, by the way? Not to be split. Pardon? Not to be split. Lovely. I love that. The word atom means uncuttable. And you can take the word uncuttable in two ways. I prefer to, prefer to take it the way that Stephen has just uh, said, and not to say you can't cut an atom, but that you shouldn't cut an atom. Uncuttable can mean two things, that you shouldn't or you can't. Now, modern science decided we'll take it that you couldn't. So we'll prove the Greeks are nutty, and we'll start splitting it. What happened when modern man started splitting the atom? Wow. We were under the heaviest cloud of humanity. 
So what we have now found, which is absolutely intriguing, and here we have a modern book of modern cosmology. Incident, did anybody see that television program the other night about uh, the Hubble um, rate, uh, factor in the universe? Fascinating program of television about the universe and absolute disarray in modern cosmology. Absolute disarray. Every representative talks in America, Australia, Europe, Britain, every single one of them had no idea how old or how large the universe is. A complete disarray. Beautiful conclusion after three hours of tedious television. <coughs> Final conclusion was maybe we need a stretched human consciousness. <laughs> Current patterns of the way in which modern science looks at the universe are inadequate to explain the age or size of the universe. They're all contradictory. That's all the Hubble. They can't find it. They don't know what to do. But lots of lovely theories going back. But what they have done, having split the atom and caused us God knows what grief uh, when they shouldn't have done. They've come to absolutely staggeringly interesting, totally in harmony conclusion with the Pythagoreans and Plato. They've come to the fact that there's a thing called a quark. They have wonderful inventive names. They have strangeness and beauty and all sorts of things. And a quark is made out of three qualities, therefore, is a tridicity. Very, very big problem to, to the modern scientists because they started having one third of spin. Contradiction in terms. How can you have one third of a spin? You either spin or you don't. But, yeah. So, the quark is, uh, has a quality of upness, it has a quality of downness, it has a quality of strangeness. And they were bold enough, the people who wrote this book, to say upness, downness, and strangeness are represented as real and distinct qualities of matter comparable in cosmic status with the electrical charge. Pretty powerful claim. Okay, why, we do, why, why, why? Why deny it? So what happens, what combinations are possible between this threeness, precisely the same thing as Plato would say, was the first combination produces these. In other words, if you have two ups and one down, you have a proton. If you have two downs and one up, you have a neutron. Incredibly simple uh, way of categorizing how these particles are working. Therefore, you've got this incredible sevenness or eightness. It's a sevenfold pattern, but there are two different representations of up, down, strangeness. So we have seven, instead of one in the middle, which is like seven, we have eight. Total pattern of the relatives of the protons called the, 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 the total pattern of possible quarks that make up the nucleus of an atom are now in this pattern here. What do we see? What do we see? Next one here. Sorry. Slight slip up here. I should have shown this slide before that one. And therefore, I think I'll come back to the slide in another lecture, but what I would like to say is that the seven note the seven notes which were allocated to seven planets in the Greek system gave rise to the actual combination. How they were arranged gave rise to what are called the different modes, which would arouse different psychological and spiritual values in the listener. The Aeolian, the Ionian, Each dealing with the seven planets, but putting the planets in a different sequence. So there are the seven possibilities. This is a, what you're seeing here is the tetractus again. One, two, one, two, four, eight, one, three, nine, twenty-seven. It gives you the whole of a musical scale system that the ancient Greek priests used. I'll come back to that in a little bit. Let's, next one on this screen. So that is, that is another way of drawing that. In this case, I put up this here, down this there, strange this there, to show that same pattern is, this is the core of the tetractus. The hexagon is the core of the tetractus. You see up, up, down there. You see up, down, down there. You see up, down, and strangeness in the middle, and so forth. You see, that's the core of that. That's the, that's the building block, the Trinitarian building block. And that is what all the particles, the possible particles, they found the ultimate particle of this pattern because they found the pattern. Very, very good example of a different kind of reasoning. 
So the next one here, if you want to know how they now name and how they place them, very, very kindly, they've gone back to the good old classical Greek, and the ultimate strange particle is the omega, plus and minus, and we have the um, nu, sigma, and psi. Remember that Jewish pattern I showed you where all these were the same, and they were the yods? And here we go again, this is the way modern science does it. These are the isospin charge, and we have to get two-thirds of a spin, one spin, we can understand that, no spin, we can understand that, but minus three seconds of a spin, totally baffling to human experience. But this is, and this is the strangeness charge going this way. This is how modern science has arrived at what is in the nucleus of matter. Which they shouldn't have opened anyway because the Pythagoras could have told them in the first place without having atomic bombs. Nevertheless, look from here. Fascinating as it is, the basic particles, if you want to contribute, as John Michel does not, and I will not either, if you want to contribute to the idea that the universe started with the Big Bang, which is here, forgive me, this is in French, in a book I can find, get the illustration, if you want to contribute to the idea that the universe started with the Big Bang, first question is, who the hell was there to hear it and call it the Bang? Sorry, I joke. Or you could say, very easily, no, the universe started with the Big Whisper. You must deny that either. Anyway, the calculations that modern science has made, you know they're this way, is before, these are microseconds of, 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 of micro aspects of the first second. The first four particles were formed in 10 to the minus four seconds. By the time three minutes were formed, all those were in place. And they have not deviated since. By the time the first three minutes from the Big Bang, we have that array in position. From then on, it's just a matter of slowly building up the atoms and the electronic principle of numbers of electrons giving us the periodic table, and finally, between 10 to the power of 3 years and 15 to the power of 10 to the power of 3, you know, this galaxy development to where we are now. So all this is fascinating, highly speculative, a lot of differences in it, but nevertheless, if you want to contribute to this, fascinating is that all this is in place and has not deviated from the first three minutes of creation, if you want to get that one. I once asked somebody who's working on that big a scientist, who's working on that big CERN thing, which is chasing particles for miles around in France, um, about the electron. He said to me something which I have never recovered from. I asked him about an electron, what life an electron has. Oh, electrons? They're eternal. But I haven't recovered since. How can an electron be eternal? Nevertheless, up to you. If you wanted to be eternal, that's great. I didn't know whether you meant the idea of an electron or actually physical electrons, but I know at the time you meant physical electrons, which is actually a total denial of all our experience that everything in the physical world changes. As I said, our body changes every seven years. Next one there. Sorry, this lecture's going on a bit. I'll try and speed it up. Here is how Lomazzo, and this is one of the scholars and architects of the Renaissance, used the symbolic and numerical value teaching altogether. The Tuscan column is six diameters in height. The Doric column is seven diameters in height. That's where we're and the Ionic is eight. That's Ionic, and that's six and eight in Silver in Georgia. Corinthian is nine diameters in height, and the composite is ten. Okay, so ten reaches the ultimate decan. All these numbers, except that rather curiously, are in the tetrachis. So in the pedestal on which the column stood, the pedestal, the composite, had to stand on a double square. 
The Corinthian had to stand on a pedestal, which is this proportion, called a sexpetrician. This one, the sex of the altar, was the perfect musical fourth, perfect musical fifth. Here, the golden mean creeping in, rather nice, five to three, Fibonacci, diagonal, and here, this square, one to one. So here again, the musical proportions are the size of the cubic form on which the column, which is proportioned like this. Here are the symbols of what, what emotion should be um, aroused by seeing this column. The peasant and animal from Tuscan. I'm quite sure the people in Tuscany wouldn't agree with them that. So, you know, a peasant and an animal. Workman, the Doric. Matron, scholar. I think actually Georgia is much better. Anyway, um, Corinthian, a maiden. And the composite, a perfect maiden. And therefore the actions associated, the, the, the come, things that come out, the hunts and gardens for the composite. Pleasures and marvels for the Corinthian, councils and triumphs for the Ionian, battles and funerals for the Doric, and the calendar for the Tuscan. Now this is just one man, but adapting and adopting the principle that has come right through from Plato and Pythagoras, that you should clad numbers with qualities and form. Next one here. Here is Palladio, the great Palladio, the divine Palladio, taking these principles coming straight from Plato, saying... There are only seven shapes of room that human beings need to live in. Because there are seven qualities in human beings which, if you remember properly, will make you whole, if you like. And here are the seven rooms which will look after every aspect of human life. Circular room, a sacred space. A square room, contemplative space. A room which is four by three, the musical fourth, is the ground plan, and that is the, that is the elevation of the room. That's the wall going out, that's the ground plan. Here, very interesting, the square root of 2, the only one which is a transcendent. That diagonal square comes down to make this room here. Musical fifth, 3 to 2. The plan of the room is 3 to 2, and this would be the wall coming up here. The other one, which we found here, Fibonacci one, 3 intervals by 5 intervals. And finally, the octave of these two, that is the double square. This form here, the whole of the Japanese architectural tradition was based on that form and that form alone with all the room proportions because it was the tiny mat on which a person slept and the whole room was arranged in patterns which two by two squares were made. So the, the, the traditions are not so far apart when it comes down to essentials. What I've drawn there which is the field of research which we are doing here at the Institute, is putting a human figure inside a square and showing the octave in the body. The lower octave is purely for action. The upper octave houses all the other functions. There are another series of octaves in the body which go there. But the rectangles I've drawn around these are those rooms on one figure. The whole of the Pythagorean proportions as interpreted by Palladio are on a single figure there. This is just a matter of research to see, to speculate, to see how one might use the tool to design it. Next one. Another thing I thought was very valuable to do was to remember that the word cosmos in all philosophical and even what we might call religious or revealed traditions, the word cosmos will always have more than one meaning. We'll never have less than four meanings. And in the New Testament, as we call it, the revelation according to Christ, which was actually a, a, a new revelation after the New tradition, there are actually six meanings to the word cosmos. There's the word cosmos in the Greek, in which the Bible was written. 
And it means six different things that's terribly, terribly important to remember. Tradition and symbolism is always about layers of meaning, not one single meaning. Cosmos means order of a manifest world. Remember, most of the stuff I've been talking about here, I haven't even yet got onto Plato's way in which he divides up physical matter. We've been talking about the soul, but this is even part of The ador adornment is the second meaning of cosmos. This word comes into modern language in the word cosmetics. People who use cosmetics are actually making themselves cosmic. Whether they know it or not, this is what... To make yourself an ideal beauty, you use certain instruments. It's the same principle. So, if it's either adornment or ornament, where cosmetics comes from, and the meaning is that the manifest world is an adornment of the permanent, invisible principles on which its nature depends. And very, very important. Adornment and ornament are not just something decorative, they're actually revealing a permanent principle. Third meaning is of cosmos is honor. The fourth meaning is beauty or beautiful. The fifth meaning is well arranged, and the sixth is wisdom. Very, very interesting to just simply face up to and read one word in the um, in any revealed tradition. It has many levels of meaning. Very, very important to remember that. Maybe a modern piece of journalism doesn't, but that's nothing to do with it. Don't think that all written words have the same value. Excellent. So I'm just going to finish now. I'm sorry, I've probably given you much too much. I apologize for the way. Plato said there were two triangles which the divine craftsman, first of all, he said, and I've given that quote in the papers I've given out, for anything to be made, <clears throat> it has to be solid. And if it's solid, it's three dimensional, and it has to be bounded by um, edges, and it has to have a volume. And the volumes, in this case, that he's going to do, the perfect volumes will have facets. Earth, air, fire, and water are the four basic elements which have survived in modern physics as the states of energy, the solid state, the liquid state, the gaseous state, the state of radiation, the same things, just different names, not challenging the nice two elements. Plato said, this, I'm going to suggest, is the most beautiful triangle in the universe. Something we never did dream of doing today, say, so triangle is the most beautiful, what could he possibly mean? We'll come around to seeing what he means. But, he said, if somebody finds a more beautiful one, the victory is theirs. It's a very, very nice way of reminding, to make us reminding the reader he's not talking absolutes. Second most beautiful one is the scaly, and he's going to choose this one out of the possible This one, there's only one kind. It's the first principle, you must have right angles. Right angle. Right angle. Think about it. What is rightness? What is right-mindedness? What is having a human right? Why do we use the word right for so many essential qualities of our civilization? And therefore, we must think it was likely done to give that angle the word right angle. One quarter of a circle. Why is it right? So, he said this, there are many of these kinds of triangles, but I'm going to pick this one, I'm going to say this is the most beautiful in the universe. And it's the one which has 90, 60, and 30. Next one here. One reason you could say that he did it was because this has um, at least two threenesses about it. This only has, it has one, it has a two-ness. These are both the same, so it has one angle and another angle. This is different, so two two-nesses. Here, three different kinds of angle, three different lengths of side. So he's going for the one which has threeness. Point. Beginning of all things. Next one. Line. The emergence of time. Next one here. Line again, which gives us the lambda on its side, if you like. And finally, third line. Third line, remember, giving us the plane. 
point line plane, everything that comes into existence goes through that pattern. There is a thought, there is a fact, there is an action, something starts as an emergence into existence, it takes part in time, and then it takes part in space, and it will have a numerical aspect, and it will have a formal aspect. Five conditions of existence. Space, time, form, number, and thereby substance. Five conditions of existence. Space, time, form, number, substance. <clears throat> Next one here. This is Plato's most beautiful triangle in the world. Drawn three hands, so all apologies for inaccuracy. This is what he's actually taking one half of an equilateral triangle. That and that are this strange mystery of a hand, which then either falls up to nothing, or that falls over to that, and that falls over to that. You know this strange thing when you've been washing up with rubber gloves? I don't suppose anybody's washing up with rubber gloves. I mean, me and my wife probably do. You take, oh good, you take your washing up glove off this hand, and what happens when you pull it inside out? It's this hand. Lovely mystery. You must have looked at that sometimes. What's happening? Next one here. Here we have the values. Most included, most beautiful triangle in the world contains the optic immediately. That is two times the length of that. Very obviously, this is half an equilateral triangle. That is two, that's one optic. Here we have the most mysterious of the, the first of the what, what are sometimes called irrational, but I much prefer to call transcendental. I'm going to differ with modern mathematics by saying so, but I don't mind differing with modern anything, frankly. <laughs> modern mathematics would not ascribe this value, which is the square root. This symbol means that that distance, if multiplied by itself, will become 3. The square root means a number, which if multiplied by itself, will become whatever that number is indicating. What's fascinating is that there is no way a computer can compute that symbol on that number, even if it goes on to all the energy universe at time, trying to do it. You cannot resolve the square root of 3 to a whole number, so the computer would actually go on forever. You will not resolve into a whole number. So we have, I would prefer to call it, a transcendental root of a number which is absolutely profoundly important. These are the first three numbers of, of, of the Pythagorean tetractus. Oneness, unity, two-ness, the octave, and three-ness. But this is the square root of three. Absolutely mysterious. Very simple to prove by Pythagoras' theorem. The square on here plus the square on there equals the square on there. What is the square of two? It's four. Square of one is one. The square of three is three. Three plus one equals four. Very easy to prove by Pythagoras' theorem. But this is the first transcendent. Plato says this is the most useful triangle. Of incredible thing to do. Next one here. But, Plato said, it must be divided in this way. It's fascinating. It has to have a sixness. All he's done is divide it in half in all the possible ways. This is the same triangle as this one. This is the same triangle. They're all the same. This is a right and left-handed version, right and left-handed version, right and left-handed version, right and left-handed version of the same triangle. So it's half an equilateral triangle, halved each way. Must have quality of sixness. First triangle to create six intervals, commonly taken up as the doctrine of Islam, Christianity and Judaism. It needs six intervals. Somebody here must have come across the I Ching and the absolutely amazing hand. Quite a few people do. Okay, what is the first primary donating hexagon in I Ching? It is the very first one. 
The creative. The creative. How many lines in the creative? Six full lines. So the Chinese tradition equally confirms that belief that the sickness. So there's the sickness. Next one here. The other triangle necessary to make up. The, this is the molecules of matter being made up. And these are still no less true now in modern physics and the molecules of matter than they were when Plato speculated them. We could say speculated them, or we could say that Plato, when he talked about recalling, knew that in an internal contemplative state or meditative state, you can actually know anything you want to know by scrutinizing the interior of yourself. That is the difference between the outer and the inner approaches to reality. So here was the other triangle, which is half a square. This, again, is one by one by the square root of two. Again, another number which will not be able to be concluded by asking a computer, what is it? What is it? What is the number which multiplied by itself will give us two? You couldn't imagine. I mean, what elementary? Surely it's simple. Surely it's a simple number you multiply. But you can't. You cannot find a whole number. Let's say the computer will go on until the universe drops and it still will not come to the but Plato said about that one, that also, next one here probably, that one has to be done like this. We have to divide the square all possible ways, and therefore we get, next one there, very interesting thing, the hexagram or sixness here, and the octave or the eightness there. These are the two facets of the atomic molecules that are going to make up the elements of materiality according to Plato. <laughs> And the next one here is how it is done. Please excuse this. This was not published by um, Plato. Neither was this. He just said, if you wish to investigate, you will find the third triangle. The third triangle is the ones I've given you is this one and this one, which were clearly uh, pronounced in the Timaeus. And like the three little pieces he left out of the Tetractus, he left out the fit. He said, there's a certain fit, and it looks like the football the children play with. Of course, he was talking about the Dodecahedron, and this is the third of those triangles, which he did not describe. A, it shows that he knew about the three, but B, he said, the friend of God will discover it. And of course, many people have since, but those are, that is the molecule of fire, that is the molecule of air, that is the molecule of water, and that's the molecule of earth. The physical world, the emotional world, the intellectual world, and the spiritual world are the symbols behind those. The point of view of empiricism, or the point of view of materiality, the point of view of psychology, the point of view of the intellect, in the truest sense of the word, and the point of view of the spiritual inspiration, the inspirational view, the revealed view, the heavenly view. Right, I'm going to finish there. I probably said much too much, and I apologise for you too much. It's a congenital disease of all lecturers. Um, Finish there, but I'm glad to have got on to this position because when I do a project with you, which will be when you come back from Morocco, that's the first year foundation students will, we will be going through these again and be making models of them, and you'll be able to actually feel with your hands why these things work beautifully because they work beautifully at the physical level as well as the other levels. What you see is those three are made out of the same triangle, but only this one is made out of this, and only this one is made out of that. So fire, air, and water are all made out of the most beautiful triangle. Another reason why this threeness here, this family of three, would be another example of Plato being a trialist. He's not a dualist. Not only is he starting from three here, but there are three solids. These are the only geometric solids 
that have equal faces lying at equal angles to each other. That's, that's why they're called the regular figures, or they're called the platonic figures, or they're called the platonic solids. Right, that's enough. You all go home now. <laughs> Unless I have trouble very deeply on somebody's toes or I said something that's utterly untrue or something. Anybody worrying about something I've said because I, I don't want to say something that somebody goes away worrying about. Wonderful. Go and sleep on it then.